Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. Before I begin this episode today, I wanted to remind everyone that Theana Money is part of the Fill the Earth Network. This is the podcast, blog, what have you network out of Cruciform Ministries. So go to cruciformministries.org, check out some of the various events and articles up on that website, and even some of my own articles that will be on the website soon. Uh, they are currently on a different website. They're currently on deadmen.org, and they will be coming off of there and being posted on Cruciform Ministries website soon. So you have all kinds of different articles I wrote there, articles on, you know, on Christmas, on Easter, on why James Cone is a heretic, which makes people mad these days. I don't know why. It's obvious that he denied essentials of the faith. But yeah, you even have uh, my article on intersectionality and why that is not biblical. All of those articles will be coming off of deadmen.org and being put on cruciformministries.org here soon. So go to that website and check those out. And also, if you all can like this episode, give it a rating and a review, five stars if you think it deserves five stars. And make sure to give it a review, not just a rating, because all of that helps the algorithm. And please uh, like it on all the social media, share it, do all that stuff to help me get this podcast out there. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Gab, and Instagram. So if you can go like and follow on all of those different sites, that would be a great help. Thank you. In this episode, I want to respond to an argument for socialism from scripture that I saw on social media a few months ago. I think if you take it bit by bit and compare it to scripture, it is actually quite easy to see how this is a terrible argument. But on the surface, this could appear to be a good argument for how scripture supposedly supports socialism, which it, by the way, does not. And that's why I am doing an entire episode on this argument I heard. So what is this argument? It is that God commands all people to help the poor, to give generously to the poor. And since the ruler of the nation, the civil magistrate, whether Caesar, prime minister, president, king, or what have you, since that ruler is a person, this command also applies to him. Now, how does that civil magistrate get his money? Taxes. Therefore, taxes to support the poor through the government are biblical because the command to help the poor also applies to Caesar and his income exists solely upon taxes. Now, perhaps you already see the flaws in this argument. Perhaps you think this is actually a pretty convincing one. 
Either way, by the end of this episode, I hope you will see what a poor argument it really is. But before we explain the flaws, let's do our due diligence as people who want to respond to the best the other side has to offer. Let's tease out this argument a bit more and put it in the best possible light, which will help our refutation of it be that much more potent. So the foundation of this argument is helping the poor and needy, and this is that golden thread of truth that makes a false argument on the surface appear to be true. Let's look at some of the verses from scripture about helping the poor and downtrodden. And take note, these few verses I'm about to read are anything but an exhaustive list. There are so many to choose from. I just picked out, um, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe a bit more than that. So let's first look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. While in Deuteronomy, I will be reading from the New American Standard 1995 edition. And then once I am out of Deuteronomy, I will be in the Legacy Standard Bible. The reason Deuteronomy is in the NASB is simple. At the moment of recording, I do not yet have access to Deuteronomy in the Legacy Standard Bible. So let's look starting at verse 7 and going all the way through verse 11. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any one of your towns and your land, which the Lord your God is giving to you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near. And your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing, then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So that was Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 11. Next, we're going to be looking at a few verses from Proverbs. The first is Proverbs 14, verse 21. And uh, I want to do the Daryl Harrison thing and See if you can hear the pages turning if I put them up to the microphone to show I am using a physical Bible as I'm reading this. So Proverbs 14 verse 21 reads, He who despises his neighbor sins, but how blessed is he who is gracious to the poor. Then Proverbs 19 verse 17 reads, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to Yahweh, and he will repay him for his bountiful deed. And finally from Proverbs, chapter 21, verse 13 reads, He who shuts his ear to the outcry of the poor will himself also call and not be answered. 
And then after that, I want to look at one verse from the New Testament at the last verse of the first chapter of James. So James chapter 1 verse 27 reads, Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So those are just uh, five passages and there were many more I could have picked from. But from these passages, we see that commands to help the poor and downtrodden, commands which also apply to our civil magistrates. And by the way, civil magistrate is a term I'm using to refer to anyone in a position of governance in the United States. I may say Caesar in this discussion, and while Caesar refers to the leader of the nation and thus is more specific than civil magistrate, civil magistrate being more general, any person in governance in the U.S., not just the president. I am using these two terms more or less synonymously. And this also doesn't just apply to the U.S. This applies to any nation. And so I will try to mostly use civil magistrate because that's a more broad term than saying Caesar. So these commands also apply to our civil magistrate because... Our civil magistrates are also human. So far, so good with this argument. But then the argument makes a shift. It says that for the civil magistrate to give to the poor, which he should do, that he must give tax money since he has no true income of his own. Thus, he must raise taxes and give that tax revenue to the poor. Therefore, welfare and socialism as a whole, are biblical because it is just the civil magistrate obeying God's commands to care for the poor and doing so through his only means of income, that being taxes. So now that we understand this argument, let's look at what is wrong with it. Yes, the civil magistrate should care for the poor, but he does not do so as the civil magistrate, and he does not do so by raising taxes for his giving to the poor. The civil magistrate is to give to the poor out of his own income, not raise taxes and let that money be considered his support for the poor. Money which does not actually come out of his bank account and therefore does not truly fulfill the command of God, by the way. But let's walk through the refutation as a mirror to the explanation. By that, I mean, let's look step by step through what I said in the explanation and give why that specific aspect is wrong one step at a time instead of jumping around or responding in general. So the first part of the argument Scripture commands us to care for the poor and downtrodden, to care for the widow and orphan. Check. So far, so good. We both agree here. And then the second part. The civil magistrate is a human, so these commands apply to him as well, because they apply to all humans. Check again. Still so far, so good. We do not yet disagree with the argument. Third step. 
The civil magistrate gets his money from taxes and therefore, if he wants to give to the poor, he needs to do it from tax revenue, which would include raising taxes in order to properly care for the poor. Wow. Majorly disagree. Uh, there is a lot here. Let's look through it one step at a time. So Caesar, according to this argument, makes his money from taxes. He makes his income from taxes. That is, his paycheck comes from tax revenue. True enough. Uh, now, many lower civil magistrate positions, such as the Indiana State House of Representatives, a position I may apply for in the future, that does not pay enough for one to do that alone, making that person bivocational in his political career. However, many civil magistrate positions consume all of a person's time, not allowing for outside sources of income that require more time than a mutual fund. So these workmen are worthy of their wages. However, in times past in the United States, bivocational politicians were much more common and perhaps our nation would be in a better position if we had more of them. It would require these politicians to step out of their ivory towers from time to time and get a taste of what the average American experience is, as well as forcing the government to pull out of where it has overstepped its sphere of authority, since these people would be working less hours, although they would probably just get around that by hiring more people. So all in all, with this one, it is more or less true. Many politicians derive their entire paychecks from their political career. And while I wish we had more bivocational politicians and can point out good reasons for such a thing, it is unlikely to happen. So thus far, the argument is holding water. And then from this follows the point that for Caesar to give to the poor, which he is required by God to do, as we saw in the first point, he must do so by giving from tax revenue. Now, if the person making this argument means that the civil magistrate's entire paycheck is ultimately from tax revenue, and thus every time he writes a check to a nonprofit or gives cash to someone in need, he is giving money derived from taxes to that person, then yes, I agree, the civil magistrate must give tax money to the one in need. And as an aside, this is another reason why more bivocational politicians would be wise. They are giving money derived from them providing value to a business rather than value to a nameless, faceless governmental agency. However, this is almost always not what the person making this argument means. He means the civil magistrate must raise taxes in order to allocate that tax revenue to the poor. This is where the argument goes off the rails and becomes an unapologetic twisting of scripture rather than the biblical argument it claims to be. First, the civil magistrate who does this is not actually obeying God's command to care for the poor out of his own goods and possessions, i.e., 
from his own bank account. He is telling others at threat of prison for unpaid taxes that they are to care for the poor person in his stead after he takes a nice percentage off the top for quote-unquote administrative costs. You can't force others to give to the poor and then claim you cared for the poor by telling them to do it for you. God sees your heart in this, and it doesn't look good. This is why I said a minute ago that the civil magistrate's monetary care for the poor should only come from taxes in that his entire paycheck comes from tax revenue, unless he is bivocational or invests heavily. And thus, any time he gives money to the poor, he is giving, quote-unquote, tax money away. Second, care for the poor is not the state's domain. This gets us into spheres of sovereignty or spheres of authority. This is a topic that I will come back to over and over again on this podcast because it is vital to understanding so much of economics from a thoroughly Christian and biblical perspective. There are three spheres of authority or spheres of government. Four if you count self-government as one, which I think it should, but people typically say there are only three, so let's go with that right now. The first is family government. This, naturally, is the family. The father is the head and bears responsibility for the success or failure of the family. He is to care for those under his authority because, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The father works to provide for his wife and children, as well as having surplus goods to provide to those in need. The second is church government. The elders have authority here. The church is the minister of grace and mercy. This does not mean that the church administers God's grace. God administers his sovereign grace monergistically by his sovereign will alone. But it does mean that preaching elders are ministers of God to proclaim the gospel and teach scripture to those under their care. And that also does not mean that only elders should proclaim the gospel. All Christians should evangelize. The church is also the minister of mercy because the church should be collectively helping the poor and downtrodden, as well as fighting against injustice, which Christians have done for nigh on 2,000 years now. And by the way, collectively there didn't mean some low-key hint at communism or anything like that. Collectively there meant that the money that church members give to the church, the elders and deacons, then take that, pay the bills, pay any of the elders who are paid staff of the church because as Paul addresses in multiple books in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, the worker is worthy of his wages using the point about the ox not being muzzled when he's treading the grain from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy. And uh, 
then if there's money left over after that, which Lord willing there is, then that money should be used to fund evangelism projects or to help the poor and widow, the person in the church barely making ends meet who's, you know, something with the engine just went on their car. The church might be able to cover it if it's not the entire engine went out, if it's something pretty cheap and easy to fix. Helping people like that, the church should be doing. And that's what I'm meaning when I'm saying collectively, that it's the church taking money given by individuals as a church, so therefore the church as a whole is the one helping. And then finally, third and last is the state government, the civil magistrate. Whereas the church is the minister of mercy, the state is the minister of the sword. As Romans 13 tells us, that Caesar does not bear his sword in vain. The state also fights against injustice, but not in the same way the church does. The state does so by bearing the sword on the lawbreakers and executing restitution when a fine must be paid. And take note that the fine is not paid from the criminal to the state, but from the criminal to the one who is wronged. Thus, biblical restitution takes place. These are the ways that the state helps the poor and fights injustice. Punishment of evildoers according to biblical precepts. The church, on the other hand, helps the poor and fights injustice by giving aid to the poor, practicing church discipline on those in sin, which includes turning them into local authorities if a crime was committed, and starting movements to oppose injustice, such as the Christians who started anti-slavery movements in the past and the Christians who start pregnancy resource clinics today. So in looking at those three spheres of authority, it is clear that financial and material help for the poor should be done on the family and church governmental levels, not on the state governmental level. The church is the minister of mercy. The state is the minister of the sword. So the civil magistrate should care for the poor in his roles as the head of his family and a member of his local church, which probably looks more like his faithful giving to his local church and his elders and deacons distributing funds to those in need. He should not, however, care for the poor in his role as civil magistrate, and he most definitely should not do so by raising taxes to give that money away. So first was that Caesar is not actually obeying God's command when he does this. Second was that he is doing something outside of his sphere of authority. Lastly, his raising of unjust taxes is wrong. God has ordained that what belongs to Caesar ought to be paid to Caesar, but he has also given us certain precepts for what belongs to Caesar, precepts which America went far beyond long ago. Here soon, a two-part episode with Dustin from Christ and Capital will drop. Part one will be on this podcast feed, and it will discuss theonomy. Part two will be on the Christ and Capital feed, and it will explain how we approach taxes from a theonomic perspective. So be on the lookout for that, because that will go a little bit more into depth about what I just briefly hinted at. So to summarize everything in this episode, yes, 
the civil magistrate should help the poor, but he should do so by giving directly to the poor out of his own personal property. But he should do so by giving directly to the poor out of his own personal money, or by giving faithfully to his local church and his elders and deacons help the poor, the orphan, and the widow around them as they are able to wisely do so. If the civil magistrate tries to help the poor by raising taxes and then giving that tax revenue to the poor, he is in violation of multiple biblical precepts. And so that wraps up this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh